Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. This is a special bonus episode where I'm going to narrate an essay entitled No Return to Normalcy. This is an effort to help you better understand the nuances of the 1920s. Because we're not so sure how many people listen to these bonus episodes, and if you'd like to be in the good graces of your teacher, there will be a code word at the conclusion of this episode. Write that at the bottom of your 7-4 quiz. You're welcome, and thank you for listening. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well trained. He will fight savages. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We will accept nothing less than full victory. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. ...from the carnage of mechanized war and European cynicism. No phrase better appealed to the American ethos at the time than Republican candidate Warren G. Harding's promise to return to normalcy. Although the folksy man from Ohio poorly phrased the word normal to the chagrin of grammaticians, it nevertheless resonated with the populace and helped his ascendance to the presidency. Despite its rhetorical influence, it was a promise that Harding could not keep. The United States was evolving into a modern society ripe for the 20th century, evidently reflected in the political, economical, and social events of the dynamic decade. Although Harding's election could be seen as an overt repudiation of internationalism, underscored by Woodrow Wilson's prized League of Nations, Republicans did not fail to recognize and appreciate the new role the United States would play in world affairs. No event highlighted Republicans' willingness to lead than the Washington Peace Conference of 1921. Administered by Harding's Secretary of State, Charles Evans Hughes, representatives from Belgium, China, France, Great Britain, Italy, Japan, the Netherlands, and Portugal were invited to discuss the possibility of collective naval disarmament in order to relieve tension and thwart the cyclical threat of militarism that contributed to World War I. Three agreements known as the Five Power, Four Power, and Nine Power Treaties were produced as a result of this meeting. These documents were revolutionary in scope as they called for a collective battleship disarmament based on ratios respecting each nation's territorial rights in the Pacific and honoring the open-door policy in China, respectively. In addition, the Coolidge administration went further to show its commitment for international peace in 1928 with the noble yet ineffective Kellogg-Briand Treaty, which outlawed future wars to come. Although these efforts were not entirely antithetical to Republican expansionist policies in the late 1800s, the use of an engagement in international diplomacy was a modern method not prominently employed prior to the 1920s. The three consecutive Republican administrations in the 1920s did seem to endorse traditional economic conservative policies with their approach to government regulation, taxes, and protectionist tariff policies. But the shifting modern economy sparked 
by rising industries called for more than just the promotion of laissez-faire principles championed during the Gilded Age. For example, the Federal Reserve, a quasi-private institution set up under Wilson administration, was established to curtail wild cat speculation and stabilize interest rates for farmers and homeowners. Under Republican leadership, the Federal Reserve kept interest rates low, which encouraged more to take out loans for economic ventures. This action was hardly traditional as institutions created by the government helped aid in the growth of businesses. Furthermore, regulatory agencies, commissions, and antitrust legislation established by the progressives a decade earlier were still in place, albeit managed by appointed men sympathetic to big business. These men certainly staved the effects of the progressive movement, but could not return to an unregulated economic environment centered on railroad development a century before. For one thing, the automobile industry was the new focal point of American manufacturing. Like the railroads half a century before, the mass production of cars had a generative effect on the development of infrastructure as well as other supplemental industries such as glass, rubber, and tourism. The automobile gave Americans more freedom to travel than the train could ever do, and this mobility had economic and social consequences. Demand for products were no longer dictated based on the train schedules, but on the arbitrary desire of the consumer. Department retail stores, advertising, and banks all had to expand and adjust to meet the rise of demand and consequent production facilitated by the assembly line method. This was perfected by Henry Ford. Those with the little capital were now offered the opportunity to pay for products in installment plans or on credit to satiate their thirst for material goods. This intense desire to buy was also found in the finance industry. The public had more access to buy on the margin for stocks, bonds, and fluctuating commodities. Although there was nothing new to credit or stock speculation, it became the dominant motif in the modern American economy. The economy was not only changing in nature, but it was growing to a point that it transcended national boundaries. By the 1920s, the world was becoming increasingly more economically interdependent from the ashes of World War I. The United States was in the unique position of being a creditor nation for the first time in its history. This rise had consequences, however, as the return of wartime investments and loans were contingent upon the stability of allied economies. Great Britain and France owed money to the United States, but was unable to pay off these loans due to a rise in inflation, sluggish industrial recovery, and unemployment. Furthermore, Germany was unable to pay reparations to Great Britain and France, as stipulated in the Treaty of Versailles. As long as Europe's economy remained stagnant, the United States would not be able to receive a return in its investment. In 1924, Banker Charles Dawes suggested a bailout plan in order to spur Europe's economy. The plan called for incremental lending to the German government, who would use funds to invest in their economy and pay debts to allied nations. Great Britain and France would in turn use that money to stabilize their own economies and pay back money owed to the United States. This action would seem alien to conservatives in the Gilded Age, who focused on domestic manufacturing and committed to Washington's warning of entanglements in his farewell address in 1796. The only action taken by Republican leadership during this decade that had a semblance of traditional conservative thought was the passage of the Fordney-McCumber Tariff, which increased duties on de imports by 25%. 
This sole action is overshadowed, however, with Republicans' use of progressive institutions to aid business and their commitment to bailing out Germany and Europe. The strongest counter to the promise to return to normalcy was the cultural revolution that took place during this decade. The devastation of the Great War brought existential challenges to young Americans desperate to find value in the institutions that encouraged them to go to a senseless and fruitless war. Young men and women began to challenge religion, government, and traditional cultural norms as a form of cathartic rebellion. Resistance to the status quo assumed various forms. Some took to the pen, such as Ernest Hemingway, Eugene O'Neill, and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Others used the brush, such as Edward Hopper. These artists will later be collectively known as the Lost Generation for promoting the themes of loss, suffering, and surrealism. Perhaps the most pervasive form of rebellion was expressed through a new musical genre called jazz. Developed by black musicians from New Orleans, this revolutionary music spread to northern cities as a result of the Great Migration. Soon, urban areas such as Chicago and New York City became cultural hubs for black migrants, reflecting on their experiences of northern discrimination and the hope of job opportunity afforded by city life. Despite widespread racism, jazz served as a gateway for cultural integration between black and white Americans. Underground bars called speakeasies were created in response to the oppressive 18th Amendment and subsequently served as cultural centers that encouraged an exchange of new ideas and values. Modern metropolitan women, known as flappers, responded to the rebellious rhythm of jazz by reflecting it in their fashion and their actions. Short hair and skirts became the staple wear of age, complemented with promiscuous dancing, drinking, and smoking. These interracial interactions, albeit minimal and limited, would have never been found in antebellum America. Certainly, these cultural changes were not accepted by all Americans. Many reactionaries began to bemoan the decline of morality as a result of this cultural revolution. Fear and frustration of the modern age manifested through bigotry. Membership and support of the Ku Klux Klan rose precipitously during this period, before falling out of popularity by the turn of the decade. Working-class nativists managed to pressure Congress to pass quota acts in 1921 and 1924, which significantly reduced the influx of immigrants coming from Eastern Europe. Induced by mysterious explosions in 1919, civil liberties were temporarily curtailed in a series of events known as the Palmer Raids in order to purge the perceptive threat of Marxism seemingly brought to this country by foreigners. Court decisions in the Scopes Monkey Trial in Tennessee and the Sacco Vanzetti Trial in Boston seem like a repudiation of secularism and tolerance. Although one may assert that these events signal a return to traditional society, the very fact there was a tension between modernists and traditionalists at this time proves there was an attempted change in culture. Just as the laws of inertia state an object in motion remains in motion, so is the arc of historical progress. The 1920s was a decade that inevitably ushered in a modern age for the United States, and no politician, no matter how charismatic, would have been able to stop the dynamic occurrences of the time. Thank you for listening. This has been No Return to Normalcy. We'll see you next time on A Pot Upon a Hill. Take care.
The code word is swordfish. The code word is swordfish.